for him. Um, nothing super serious, nothing like that, nothing life-threatening, just not feeling well. And, um, and so he stepped out during the greet time. And so I'm so thankful that we have individuals in the church that are willing to step up and step in when they're needed. And so I appreciate Lance uh, Bishop stepping in and helping in the sound booth there. Um, and I jumped on the computer to try to do the slides. And so that one song where the slides were, that was me, okay? That was me trying to help. Figured it out, though. We got settled down after that. We, we went pretty good for the rest of the couple of songs. And so, um, but I'm just so thankful for individuals that are willing to step up and, and do what's needed when it's needed, even though it kind of throws you into a whirlwind um, to say, hey, you want, can you come run our soundboard real quick? Okay, yeah, sure. And so, but appreciate them doing that. Um, if you have a Bible, again, open up to Matthew chapter 15. Matthew chapter 15. We are in our second week of the undo series. What would Jesus undo? We started this last week, and I am truly excited to continue to walk through uh, this material with you over the next couple of weeks. Uh, And again, I want to encourage you. We've got three weeks left, and so maybe you would say, you know what, I'm going to commit to be here the next three weeks. I'm going to make sure I'm a part of this series until the end. Um, Obviously, if you miss one, Uh, We want to encourage you to get that through the app. You can download our church app and you can listen to the sermons right on there. Also online, you can get those. Or if you prefer a CD copy, we can do that as well. And so whatever way possible, we want to get the Word of God and the messages from this series into your ears this coming week and in the weeks to come. Many of us remember, uh, kind of talking about the idea of this series, many of us remember back in the, maybe it was the 90s, even 2000s, WWJD. It was everywhere. It was t-shirts, it was bumper stickers, it was bracelets. And it was a great slogan, what would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? And a lot of us, when we tackle decisions or we tackle situations, we try to say, what would Jesus do in this situation? Or, or how would Jesus respond to this person? Or, or what would Jesus do with this situation if he worked where I worked And that's great to do that, but I think sometimes things like WWJD um, or we call our prayer ministry on Sunday mornings, GAP, God Answers Prayer, uh, we hear these things and sometimes they can just become slogans, just kind of a, a saying that really loses the truth behind what we're saying. And so for a lot of people, they'd wear the WWJD bracelet, but if you really looked at their life or they really looked at their own life, they would honestly say, I'm not really doing what Jesus would do. Uh, It's a bracelet, it's a saying, it's something I hope to do, but it's not something I'm really doing. And so rather than talk this next couple of weeks about what would Jesus do, I'd like to talk about what would Jesus undo in our lives so that we can be genuine in our faith. Uh, This morning we're discovering that he would undo hollow worship. I encourage you to take notes this morning if you have something you can write down with or maybe in your device you can throw some notes in. I'm going to give you some ideas, some scriptures, and I encourage you to study those out for yourself. But I truly believe that that Jesus would undo hollow worship in our lives. Matthew chapter 15, you're already there. Look at verse 7. Matthew chapter 15 and verse 7. You hypocrites... Well did Isaiah the prophesy of you saying, that's Isaiah, this people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honoreth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. This people draws nigh unto me with their mouth and honors me with their lips, 
but their heart is far from me. Can we go before the Lord this morning in prayer? And I know Greg has already prayed, and I want to just pray and ask God to speak to us through this and to challenge us where we are in our idea of worship and what does it mean to us to worship God today. And maybe if we're not thinking biblically, maybe if we've become, as we said last week, indifferent to the area of worship in our lives, I said it last week, Jesus would undo spiritual indifference in our lives. We could call that apathy. We could call that lukewarmness. But Jesus would challenge us, I truly believe. And this is where we have to retrain our thinking to stop thinking of Jesus as this kind of 60s hippie flower Jesus we've made him to be. And to be the real Jesus of the word of God that was very loving and very compassionate, but equally very firm and very stern when he needed to be. I mean, when you read these words in Matthew chapter 15, this is not flowery. This is not like fluff. This is not just easygoing, you know, oh, you're fine. He gets right in the religious leader's face and challenges them and says, no, you think you're worshiping me, but it's vain. Do you know what vain means? Empty, worthless, meaningless. Do you know why God says, do not take the Lord, the name of the Lord God in vain? We think that just means repetition. No, no, no. That that doesn't mean just swearing either, by the way. It's saying anytime you say the name of God or Jesus or Yahweh or Jehovah or any other of the just insane amount of names he's been given throughout human history, when you say those names, there has to be a weight with that name. We should not just flippantly say God's name. There needs to be an understanding. When I speak the name of Jesus, I'm talking about the one that was there in the beginning that formed me of the dust of the ground. He is God. And when we just flippantly, even in prayer, can I say this? Even in prayer, when Christians just get into their prayer life and Heavenly Father, blah, 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 blah. And we're five minutes into our prayer and we have no idea what we've even said because it's just empty. We have to guard our hearts and say, no, 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 no. I need to make sure that my worship is not empty, but my worship is all that I can give. That I am putting all appropriate weights to this, or putting effort into this thing that I'm doing, or this song that I'm singing, or this work that I'm doing for him, or this whatever it is that we're giving to him as an act of worship. Matthew chapter 15, Jesus is very firm. He says, you think you're worshiping me. That's the scariest thing when Jesus reminds us that we think we're doing something we're not really doing. We think we're being so spiritual, and he's like, I see your works. You can come near me with your lips, and you sound really good, and you're impressing all these people. But I see your heart, and it's not even close to near me. I had somebody tell me just yesterday, they were talking about there was some family, and they prayed for a meal, and Unfortunately, the family that this person was with, their own family, but they were with them, and they tend to, they're more of the religious side, not so much the Jesus follower side. So they're just kind of seemingly going through the motions, and, and this uh, individual prayed for the food. And when everything was said and done, this person's heart was broken because they said, man, I don't even know if you actually, number one, know what you just prayed, and, and, and you're not really praying it for him. You're just trying to impress us with these big words. See, we can, we can get so wrapped up in making it sound good. You know the number one fear? I'm not picking anyone. I'm just saying this is how it is. The number one fear of why people are afraid to pray out loud or talk to somebody about God because sometimes they feel like, I can't, I can't say it well, 
so I don't want to say anything. I can't say it well. And that's a human fear. But understand, when we're praying before God, whether corporately together, whether on our own devotionally or with our spouse, I've talked to couples and I've told couples, you know, I want to encourage you to pray together. I try to pray together so semi-often. Just spend time praying together as much as you can. It will really help your relationship, not just grow. Because so many people think marriage is, I got to grow, you know, we grow our marriages by date nights and by growing in intimacy and, and growing in hobbies. And those are good and fine and communication is good and fine. But we always neglect the spiritual intimacy between a husband and wife. That's one of the key areas that we're going to grow as a couple. It's to not just fan the flame of these other areas, but to say, no, 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 our connection in Christ is what's really going to hold us together. So we, we encourage that intimacy greater than the rest. But so many couples have said, it's so awkward to pray out loud with my spouse because I don't know what to say. That's human thinking. That's human fear saying, I, I want to impress or I don't want to sound foolish when I pray before someone. Man, don't worry about how it sounds to them. You need to be concerned, how does it sound before him? What am I expressing before him? Is it the cry of my heart before my heavenly father? Look, if I pray something and you're like, well, that wasn't worded very well. I'm not concerned. (laughs) I'm praying to him. And now here's the cool thing. When we pray as couples or as corporately as a church, you know what happens is, is I'm praying to him and I'm saying, God, would you help me in this area of my life? Would you help me in this struggle of my life? Someone in that room is going to say, Man, Lord, they struggle with that too. I mean, thank you for reminding me that I'm not alone on an island in this battle that I'm in. See, it's so encouraging when we can think about these things in a way of before God, not trying to impress man and be a pleaser of men. So I want to pray and I want to ask God. That wasn't even in my notes, none of that. It was just all free. You got that extra. It's a bonus. Memorial Day weekend special right there. Just giving stuff away today. I want to pray and I want to ask God, God, give us a wisdom in this. Help us to know what worship really looks like and help us to be aware of when we are drifting away from that. Father, we thank you for this morning. And Lord, we do lift up TJ Bornison this morning. Lord, I am just so thankful for Daniel and TJ and just what they mean to our church. Lord, we have been blessed by TJ's service to our church in so many ways. Lord, we've known Danielle for so long, and I'm just so thankful for them as a couple. Their commitment to walk with you and to be um, in service and ministry together is such an, an amazing testimony. And so, Lord, I pray that as only you can, that you would comfort, that you would give peace, and Lord, I pray you'd bring healing into his life. Lord, I say, I'm thankful that he came this morning not feeling well, trying to do what you called him to do. I pray we'd learn from that this morning, Lord, that, that sometimes we just got to push through. But I'm thankful as well, Lord, that he was able to step away, maybe to get some rest today, to be ready to go for Tuesday at work, Lord. I just pray you'd bless him in a mighty way. Lord, I pray you'd be with us this morning as we gather together to talk about this idea of worship. And I pray that we would not make the the mistakes so many make. I've made in my own life, Lord, where we start thinking about someone else during these kind of messages. We start thinking about someone else needing to hear this. We start already thinking about how we're going to give this message to so-and-so because, man, they really need to hear this. Lord, I pray that we would make this about a conversation between you and I. That, Lord, it'd be about a time we spe- you speak to us and we are conformed to the image of Christ. Thank you for the words of Christ. Thank you for your word. 
speaks truth into our lives. May we conform to the truth and not to what we feel. We love you, Lord, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In this passage, we see Jesus again be very pointed with the religious leaders who were questioning Jesus about his disciples' lack of ceremonial washing. Now, I'm not going to get too far into that because a few weeks ago, um, Sandra and I were away and Pastor Greg, uh, which it's still cool to say that, by the way, if you don't know, uh, last weekend we uh, ordained Greg Blount, brought him on as our youth pastor. And so we are so pumped about that. But Pastor Greg preached a message about preferences and, and these things that can kind of creep into the church and almost become legalism in our churches. And he kind of talked about this idea here. So I'm not going to go too far down that, but just understand these guys were coming to Jesus saying, hey, your own disciples aren't even taking part in these ceremonial washings. And these ceremonial washings were not something they took lightly, by the way. This was done habitually. This was done constantly. Um, There are some uh, that would actually wash multiple times, even in a meal. Um, and, And so this was not something that they did just kind of out of just a flippant idea. This was a habitual almost religious to them, and it made it religious to them, ceremonial washing. And so Jesus' disciples aren't doing this. And so they challenged Jesus' disciples, and they challenged Jesus. Like, you say you're this and this, but look, your disciples aren't following what we say they should be doing. Now, again, I want to remind you of this. If you ever go to Jesus with a complaint, if you're ever going to go tell Jesus something that he did wrong, you really, really, really need to make sure that you're perfect. Because the minute you go before Christ and try to tell him that he did something wrong, he's going to instantly say, hmm, that's interesting. Let's take a little journey through your hearts. And then you're going to find out at the end of it that he was completely right and you were completely wrong. So just know that going in. It's kind of like a conversation with your spouse. Just know going in, husbands, guys, men, that you're going to think you're in the right. But by the end of the conversation, you find out that you were wrong, even though, even though you're right, you're still wrong, and then somehow... Your wife is found right. I've read a study on that. I don't know from personal experience. I'm just saying I came across a case study in a magazine, and they talked about that. Jesus here challenges his disciples. Or I'm sorry, they challenge Jesus' disciples, so Jesus challenges them. As he usually does, he takes them literally to the heart of the matter and looks beyond the surface. These scribes and Pharisees looked great on the outside. They presented well. Hear me now. They presented well. They followed all the ceremonial traditions and offered worship to God. The only problem was they were like brightly decorated Christmas presents that were nothing but empty boxes. I was trying to think about that statement when when I heard that. Another author said that. I thought, that's a great illustration. And I remember back a few years ago, we did, uh, with our teen ministry, we used to do um, White Elephant Right? Is that the one where you bring in a gift that's really not worth much of anything, but you try to exchange it for other gifts and stuff? With the teens, you had to give very specific things like no creams, right? Like nothing like that um, because hemorrhoid cream was brought in one time and we were like, that's a little awkward because I had a seventh grader that's like, what's this for? And I was like, mm, we're not going there. It's church, okay? But I remember one year, uh, I don't remember who did it, but somebody brought in this big box and it was all wrapped up real nice. And somebody, of course, you, they all put all the presents in the middle of the floor, and you go up. Everybody has a number. You go up, and then you take a gift. You open it. You can steal someone else's gift the way we did it, all those kind of things. And so, of course, this box, this wrapped, beautiful present, 
people, and it's a big box. And what do kids and teens think when they see a big box? Big present, right? So they go and they get this present, and they open it up, and there's just, like, newspaper. So they dig through that, and there's another box. And they open that one up, newspaper, another box. And they go all the way down to the small little box. And at this point, I'm just dying, because this kid looks just wrecked, like just heartbroken. There was a penny inside. So this big old box, a penny. The kid literally got mad, threw the box down, and said, that's stupid, and like got, got angry about it. Why? Because based on what you see, it should be this beautiful, expensive, nice gift. All that work, all that effort, a penny. A penny. And that's the only thing I can think of in connection with this. It looks good. It looks presented well. It's beautiful. But there's not even a penny inside. There's nothing inside. And we think we're coming before God and we think, oh God, look what I'm giving you. And he sees inside and he says, there's nothing there. Jesus does not and has never wanted hollowed, shallow, this, this surface-type vain worship. He deserves true, genuine, heartfelt, self-abandoning, all-surrendering, unconditional worship. So I want to encourage you this morning, don't give God an empty present today. Don't give him an empty present In fact, give him more than just lip service. We've come towards a part of the service where we've sang songs, we've prayed prayers, we've done all these things. We've shaken hands with people, we've smiled, we've said, how you doing? We've encouraged each other this morning. But I want to encourage you before God, give him more than lip service. We can talk a good talk, but the proof is in our lives. Worship is not a solitary act. It is a lifestyle. We tend to think because we are going through the motions that we are good. But the truth is, the Bible never describes surface religion as good or productive. James shares with us what pure religion is in James 1.27. Pure religion, James says, and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit the fatherless and widows in their affliction and keep himself unspotted from the world. All of that connects not to just our words. It connects to our very lives. The word religion here in James 1.27 in the Greek carries the idea of fearing or worshiping God to tremble. Get this now. James says, you want to talk about your religion? You want to talk about your faith? Here's what I'm telling you. Pure religion, true religion, undefiled before God is this. What's that religion mean? To come before God in fear and trembling. Not, I'm scared of you, but God, I I understand at least somewhat who you are, and I come before you in sheer trembling. And I'm worshiping you. I'm giving you worth and praise, but I know that I am not on the same plane, and so I tremble before you. James is saying, you want to know what real religion is, what it really means to worship God, what it looks like to tremble before him? It's not just done in a church service. It's done in our very lives. It's when we go out of ourselves and start to serve others. It's not merely in our words, but in our actions. If we claim to have a fear of God and we know him as our savior, there should be an overflow that leads us to serving others, to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we're doing that, we are worshiping God. It's not 
one or the other. It's not, well, I don't have to go to church to worship God because I can worship God anywhere. Or I don't have to do anything Monday through Saturday because I go to church on Sunday. Those are two extremes that aren't encouraged in Scripture. The truth is a balance between, no, I gather with God's people to worship and praise God and be encouraged and lifted up by the Word of God. And then I go into my week to serve and love others as myself so that I can worship God. We sometimes, we battle with that. We think it's one or the other. We also think it's not the job to do those things. It's the pastor's job to do those things. It's the pastor's job to go and do the ministry that is a church. I mean, that's what we pay him for. That's what we pay him for because he's here. He's supposed to go do the ministry. Do you know what Ephesians 4 actually says? Ephesians 4 tells us it's the pastor's job, the teacher-preacher's job. And that word in the Bible, pastor-teacher, in Ephesians 4 is the same one word. It's not pastor or teacher. It's pastor-teacher. It says the job of the pastor is to equip, get this now, the saints to do the work of the ministry. Now, that doesn't mean that I don't do the work of the ministry as God has called me. What I'm saying is we in our church culture today, we think, no, the church just comes and watches church happen up here. And then we up here, or pastoral staff or deacons, we go do the work of the ministry while the church just goes and lives their lives. We come back the next week, and as long as the air is on, as long as the seats are comfortable, as long as the message is somewhat okay, as long as the band is good, I'll keep coming back and giving you a little bit of my income, but you just got to keep me happy because it's like, you know, a membership here, and so I, I get what I put into it. So if I give you 50 bucks, I want to be served. Now, come on, give me my $50 worth of service. And we've got it all flipped. No, 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 no. We come together as the body of Christ and we get into the word of God so that the body of Christ can go do the ministry. That's why it's so huge when Paul says, equip the saints, perfect the saints, mature the saints is a better word, to do the work of the ministry, Ephesians 4.12. That's why we are here, to be equipped. See, worship is more than just a song. It's more than just a liturgical act in a church where we say a prayer and we, in some churches, burn some candles or some incense and light a candle. It's so much more than that. Give him more than lip service this week in worship. But also, let me encourage you to give him more than you give anything else. Now, I know this is a tough message. I notice that when messages like this come along, it's a little, a little quieter in the church. It's not quite as, I don't know, people seem to be more engaged, and I I hope that's true. This is not a make you feel bad to go do something sermon. This is is what God's word says, and let's submit to the authority of God's word. Let's do what God's word lays out. Let's see what God is actually saying, and then go do that because, I don't know, he's our savior, and he died for us. Give him more than you give anything else. God is jealous. The Bible tells us that in the Old Testament, that God is a jealous God. How can God be jealous and it not be a sin? Because he literally deserves everything we can give. How can God dare to be jealous? Because he literally is the only one that deserves everything we can give. Anyone else that demands that is in sin because they aren't worthy of that. But God is the only one that is. The very first commandment given was simple And demonstrated his desire that we would keep him first. You will have no other gods before me. Now that's one that we think, okay, I'm not going to have any idols. And when we were in Mexico, we were uh, in in the airport and I bought this little statue thing. 
from one of the little tribal groups or whatever. I don't know if it was Aztec or Incan or whatever, but I thought it was cool. I was like, this little guy is neat. I like that. So I put it in my backpack and put it in my luggage and put it on the plane. Boy, we went, got back home, and it broke. You know, someone in our group said, that's because you brought an idol back. <laughs> no, I think it's poor airport staff that doesn't know how to handle luggage. That's what I think it is. But they were, on, no, no, that's an idol. That's not what we're talking about here. Now, for some people, that's an idol. In some cultures, in some countries, in some uh, people groups, those little things can become idols. But that's not what we're talking about. When it says don't put anything before God, it's he's literally number one in our lives above everything else. And this is where we say as good Christians in America, yes, pastor, that's how I see it. Really? Really? God is absolutely number one in your life all the time. I'll be honest with you. As a pastor, that's not always true day to day. There's countless times in my life as a believer that I have exchanged something in God's place, but I thought I was okay because I was going to church and I was doing these things, but I was telling God, you're number one when really it was my wife or my kids or my career or it was my hobby or any other thing I want to put in there, but I justify it because while I only do it, we need to give God more. Some people say, well, give God at least the time that you spend doing your hobby. So if you spend this long doing this hobby, give him at least that much time during the week. If you watch TV for, you know, three hours a day, then give God at least three hours a day. That thought right there terrified some of you. Some of you literally just thought, what would I do with between me and God? What would my devotional, what could I do for, for three hours? I can read scripture and pray in 20 minutes and I'm done. What can I do for three hours? I'd get bored. I'd get tired. I'd fall asleep. I'm saying, no, no, no. We don't give God what we give these other things. We give God more than we give these other things. When we think about our worship to God, I want us to think about all areas of our life. Maybe we think of it this way. How much time do you give or invest in your hobbies, your family? How much time do you give or invest in your friends, your career? How much effort do you put into your fitness, your job? Whatever that is, look at it that way. In all these areas, what do I invest in these areas of my life? And then step back and say, okay, now what am I investing in my relationship with God? How much time, how much efforts, not even time, maybe efforts is the better word, am I investing in this? Are you willing to put more than all those other things into your worship of God? How? The Bible tells us two quick things, just little snippets of Scripture. In all your ways, acknowledge him, and he will what? Direct your path. In all your ways, acknowledge him. What does the New Testament say? Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. How do I, but when I'm at work and I'm doing this secular job, that can be worship to God if your heart is in tune. If you're still meditating on the things of God, you're meditating on the word of God, you're praying without ceasing, and you're thinking, God, and when I'm working this job, give me the wisdom when that guy comes over to ask him, wait, his wife was having some health problems. How can I pray for you? I've been praying for you. Is anything going on? Hey, do you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? I mean, it's just, it's amazing how all these things in our lives, we think so boxed and compartmentalized. It's not that way. As a follower of Christ, my whole life is his. I don't get to tell God, no, God, you can't have Mondays between this time and this time because that's my time. The reality is in Christ, there is no your time. It's all his time. You might say, I don't know, pastor, that sounds pretty legalistic. No, that sounds biblical. You are bought with a price. Your life is not your own. That's what God's word says. That's not what American church wants us to believe. 
May he gave, don't you know your body is the temple of God? We don't get to go to God and say, now here's the thing about grace though. Isn't this crazy? He'll let you go to him and tell him, this is my time and this is my time. He'll say, okay. And then all the consequences that come with those choices, he'll let you have those too. And when you deny him and deny him and deny him and reject him and reject him and reject him and he's trying to draw you in and then that sin temptation comes and you give in to that sin and then you commit that sin and then you go, God, where were you? He said, I was trying to have a relationship with you, but you ignored me, so I just let you have what you wanted. I was trying to prepare you for that. I wanted to get you ready for that mentally and emotionally. I was trying to put some guards around you, but you kept denying me. You kept living in indifference. And so therefore you were open to attack. You gave in to attack. I didn't want it. I wanted to help, but you didn't let me. See, isn't that crazy how God will say, this is the ideal. This is what I have for you. This is the plan for you. And we constantly pull it out of his hands and say, no, I got this. I got this. I might have mentioned it last week. I know we mentioned it in our men's study. The scariest words a man can tell me is, I can handle it. When a man tells me I can handle it, whatever we're talking about, I'm scared for them. I'm worried for them because I know, no, you can't handle it. What do you mean you stay up late after your wife goes to bed and you're on the computer by yourself with no guards, no defense, no nothing? No, it's fine. I can handle it. No, you can't. We have to think about these things. We have to guard our hearts and our minds against these things. And it comes back to an act of worship. Man, don't think worship is just what the band leads us in for the first couple songs. But let me tell you this. It is also that. Now, some of you aren't musical people. Some of you, I mean, you could go to church. There'd be no music. You'd be fine. Just give me the word of God. Preach for three hours and I'd be good. Some of you are wired that way. Some of you, you love the word of God, but music is a big part of your life. You just, you love to worship through music. I know someone that has a tattoo that says, when words fail, music speaks. And music is powerful. Uh, there's nothing better than standing before God with his people just singing praises to him, whether there's a band, whether it's acapella, whatever it is. For, for some of the church, the orchestra stuff, right? Like, amen, hallelujah, get a little praise going on with some violins and whatnot. Whatever it is, music is powerful. It moves us, right? That's okay, because guess where music came from? That was a gift from God. He gave us music. Now, I don't know about country music, but he gave us music, okay? That's the point. And you think about this idea. Here's what I want to encourage you with, and I'm not, I pray you know my heart on this. Man, we should, be, we should be coming into this room ready to worship. And I'm not going to go too far on this, but I've, I, you can ask those that are in the praise band for years. I've, I've always said this. Going back, I mean, I'm talking when I was just a youth pastor. I said, I always feel bad for the first song we do because it's not really a time of worship. It's more of like, a, oh, I'm late for service. I better go get my seat. Oh, I better wrap up this conversation. Man, the, the first, when, when this band, when these musicians, when we gather for the, the time of worship, it is not a, all right, now we're starting. You should probably take a seat now. It's, man, I get to worship him. And there's been some Sundays, hear me now, I've come in that back door. There are three verses in, almost done with the song, and I'm like, because oh, I let myself get distracted. I didn't make it a priority. I got something else going on. Now, sometimes that happens. You can't avoid it. I get that. But man, I don't know about you, but I love gathering together to worship God. 
and I don't want to be distracted anymore. Now, when I was prepping for the sermon this week, I was like, wait, I've done this. I've created these habits in my life. No, I'm sorry. At 1030, when somebody's talking, I'm going to say, excuse me, can we pick this up after service? I don't want to miss the worship. I need to be doing that in my own life. And so, look, it's not a legalism thing that we're going to be checking the seats at 1030. No, it's, it's your desire. Do you even think, I don't want to miss this. I don't want to engage in the worship of God's, with God's people. We must be consciously aware of how we're and what we're doing, saying, thinking. Does this glorify God? Real quick, I want to unpack this a little more. It's 11.45, and we're just to point two. So buckle up. Here we go. <laughs> Hallelujah. <laughs> Barbecue's calling. Anybody? Anybody? Okay. So how do we express our worship? It's great to speak in generalities. It's great to speak in a broad sense. But how do we express our worship? First question we have to ask is, is there a wrong way to worship? Is there a wrong way to worship? Now, in some churches, you get very different answers. Yes, it's wrong if it doesn't look like this and sound like this and you're not wearing this and so on and so forth. Other churches say, nope, there's no wrong way to worship. Just do whatever you feel. It's all good because in God, grace. I would suggest to you both of those are not accurate. Both of those are not true. The truth is, when we are doing anything for a show before others to be praised by them, that is, if you want to say it this way, wrong worship. When we know we have something between us and someone else, and yet worship like everything is fine, that, in my opinion, is not right worship. You can jot it down for time's sake. We're not going to turn there. Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 through 24, is where the principle, I believe, we draw from that idea. That if I know I have aught with a brother or sister in Christ, man, I need to go to them and try to make that right and not just keep worshiping like everything's fine. Just kind of putting on the show. Again, I'm a really nice-looking Christmas present. But that, that issue, that, that division between me and someone else, it's distracting. It's disruptive. It's pulling me away. And I'm not fully engaged because I'm thinking about what brother or sister so-and-so said about me. And you might say, well, come on, that's kind of silly. Just let it go. For some of us, it's easy to do that. For others, it actually is something that's bothering us, and we need to address it before we just keep going through the motions of worship. When we are not worshiping in truth, John chapter 4, he says the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. We get the spirit part. We're coming together in the unity of the Holy Spirit. Our words, our everything is put through the lens, if you will, of the Holy Spirit, and it's ushered before God himself through the blood of Christ. We gather in the unity of the Spirit to worship God. We can gather anywhere and worship him. We don't need to go to the temple in Jerusalem or this certain place. And we understand that, but the truth part, I think, is where we've got to remind ourselves that I need to worship God and honor God for who he says he is and then remind myself of who he says I am. I don't get to go before God and dictate to him who he is. I need to worship in truth. No, this is who you say you are. Wrong worship centers, honestly, in a wrong heart. We're back to the Matthew chapter 15. When my heart is distant from God, my worship will be shallow and self-centered. Worship is best described as bowing down, bowing down to something or someone. Let me ask you a question this morning. What are you bowing your heart down to? What are you bowing down to in submission and giving it rule and reign over you? Are you bowing to your own desires? Are you bowing to your own feelings? 
Again, rejecting the truth and allowing emotions to reign? Are you bowing to other people and allowing them to be the things that you elevate in your life and then you live for them, not for God? Is your heart bowing down to these things? Or let's keep it really, really... And again, understand everything I said at the beginning of this message. Are we bowing our hearts to our country in some sense of nationalism and we've elevated that above where God needs to be? Reality check. I honor our heroes and our troops and all those who serve. Understand when I say this, put it in this box. God's not in heaven with a bald eagle t-shirt on. God's not in heaven like Uncle Sam. That's not how God is described in Scripture. The Bible actually says God is not a respecter of persons. So we have to understand something. Yes, we need to be proud of our country and defend our country and stand up for what's right in our country and all those things, but our nationalism better fall short of our view of God in our lives. We better be more concerned about God's glory and quoting Scripture than we are about rattling off the Constitution and those things. True worship is submitting, bowing down to the authority that God should be in our lives. Remember that worship is intended to stimulate our minds And then the truth activates our emotions as a response. True worship is intended to stimulate our minds, and then that truth activates our emotions as a response. It's not the other way around. Our emotions don't get stimulated, and then the truth follows. It's always truth is stimulated first, and then emotion follows in response. So what true worship looks like? I just want to give you a couple quick things real quick here kind of in addition to what we've already talked about. There are so many ways we read of worship being expressed. We're talking about physical expressions through Scripture. We know about our actions, our lifestyle, but what about an actual worship? While not an exhaustive list, I wanted to share a couple ideas to show us the gambit that worship can run in our lives. So we talked about bowing down our hearts, but sometimes in Scripture, worship is a literal bowing down. It's actually a falling on our face before him, Psalm 95 and verse Six. Sometimes we lift our hands in adoration to God, Psalm 63, 4. We actually praise him by the lifting of hands. And again, if you see someone lift their hands and your first thought is, man, they're thinking it's all about them, I would encourage you to say, God, check my heart. And if you're lifting your hands so somebody can think you're spiritual, I would suggest you put your hands in your pocket. When we lift our hands in adoration, it is not to impress anyone or show some spiritual level of genuineness in our lives. It is to praise him because we just say, God, I lift you up because you are that worthy. Sometimes we worship with a sacrifice of praise, Hebrews 13, 15. I think this could take many, many forms. We praise him in different ways, but it's this idea of I'm sacrificing my life before him in praise and adoration. And then ultimately, daily, we lay down our lives as an act of worship, as we've already kind of said Romans 12 and verse 1. When we lay down our lives before him, the expressions of our worship will follow as an overflow. When I lay down my life before him and say, my life is yours, in moments in my life, he will lead me to express my worship in different ways at different times. We must realize that while, yes, worship isn't about you and I, it's about praising him, we must also remember that we are the ones doing the worshiping. We must realize that we are blessed to be able to worship him, and worship is truly the enjoyment of God. Amen? When I worship God, you want to talk about a right and wrong way to worship, 
Ultimately, the best way I can worship is by realizing, God, my joy comes for you. My satisfaction comes from you. It's not about me. I get that. And while that's true, I'm still involved in the worship. And I need to make sure that I'm connected to him and understanding my joy comes from him. I want to go to one passage quickly. And I encourage you to turn there way back in the Old Testament. Nehemiah chapter 12. Nehemiah chapter 12. And I want to just kind of highlight a couple of verses here. If you don't know the story of Nehemiah in the Old Testament, it's an amazing story. The city of Jerusalem has been destroyed and walls have been destroyed. And Nehemiah goes back to begin rebuilding. We're getting down to chapter 12. And they're basically doing the dedication of the walls. They're kind of dedicating the work. And I want to highlight a couple of verses here and then kind of unpack them and see just this principle flowing from Old Testament to even today. It says here in verse 27, at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, Nehemiah chapter 12, verse 27. And at the dedication of the wall of Jerusalem, they sought the Levites out of all their places to bring them to Jerusalem to keep the dedication with gladness, both with thanksgiving and with singing, with cymbals and psalteries and with harps. There's this time of praise and adoration. Verse 31. Then I brought up the princes of Judah upon the wall and appointed two great companies of them that gave thanks. That word there, companies, can also be translated choirs. Two great choirs to give thanks. And verse 43. Also that day they offered great sacrifices and rejoiced. For God had made them rejoice with great joy. And wives also, and the children rejoiced, catch this now, so that the joy of Jerusalem was heard even afar off. Isn't that awesome? It was so loud and so joyous that people afar distance away could hear the expression of joy. Now get this, these people who had been through exile... Remember now, these are people that have been exiled from the homeland. They've been removed from their homeland. They're returning back to Jerusalem. They're coming back in. After years of rebuilding and adversity, they boldly declare God is good. And they rejoiced. These people have gone through so much. Even their own people were rising up against them. And yet they stand at the dedication of what God had done. And with two great choirs... They sing praises to God. And in such a loud commotion, people are far away even know and hear. We must understand that the beauty of biblical worship is that we have great joy when we worship him. It is delight more than duty or obligation. We get to worship him. We worship because in Christ we are full and complete. And it should stir joy in us. That truth stimulated in our minds, causes joy as a response. I want to close with one more passage. And I want to continue this idea of praising him with joy and satisfaction and finding everything we need in him, which leads us to worship. Revelation chapter 19, verse 1, I'm just going to read it. It says this, After this I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven, crying out, hallelujah, salvation and glory and power belong to our God. In that verse, Revelation 19, 1, it begins by saying, after this. What is the this in the after this? That's chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation when we read of the destruction of Babylon, this idea of this place being destroyed. 
And so what is Babylon? In the New Testament, Babylon is a picture of worldly pleasures, wealth, and seduction. Babylon would draw people away from God and seduce them into living for themselves to achieve fulfillment and pleasure, drawing people into spiritual adultery. However, in Revelation 19.1, we read, the church stands and celebrates his glory. In the midst of all the worldly temptations and all the worldly pleasures and all the things that would draw them, the worldly lust, they declare that our deepest joy, our deepest pleasure, our deepest satisfaction is found not in the pleasures of the world, but in the worship to our great God and King. This is why we worship today. This is why we sang and why we will sing in a moment. Because we know and want all to hear that we will not be drawn into the lust of the world, the temptations of this world for momentary surface satisfaction. We have found in our God our supreme satisfaction. We will declare boldly, he is worthy. So let me ask you a question. As we come this morning and worship him, will we lay down our lives and surrender? Will we come to the altar and worship? Will you be reminded that in worship to our king, we find our deepest satisfactions, our deepest desires fulfilled, met, and overflowing in him? What is worship to you? How would you describe your worship before God? In whatever way that God is leading, would you respond to him as we pray? Father, we thank you for this morning. Father, I know that many of us, myself intuited, can drift into this hollow worship, this idea of just empty, vain, going through the motions. I pray, Lord, we would realize that our worship is our life as a follower of Christ. I know we're not perfect. I know we make mistakes. But I pray that we would look to you and realize that you can satisfy our deepest joy and have satisfied our deepest desires in Christ Jesus. So may we stop being consumed by the lust and the temptations of this world, by the pull and the draw of wealth and worldly pleasures and these surface satisfactions and realize we, the reason we stand in worship is because you died on the cross for our sins. You were buried in a borrowed grave and you rose again on the third day. And now in Christ, we stand complete and full and saved, redeemed for all of eternity. And we will declare boldly before this world that you are ours and we are yours. And we don't need any of that other stuff. We have you and you are enough. And so may we praise you this morning with complete adoration, complete surrender, and just self-abandon, Lord. We know it's not about us, but Lord, we know that we are satisfied in you. So I pray that you'd be glorified, that you would lead God and direct in this time. We ask in Jesus' name. Would you stand to your feet this morning as we respond in a time of celebration? Would you come? Would you bend a knee if you feel led to come and pray? Would you respond to him and worship him this morning and praise him for who he says he is?